Peter Granny and Elizabeth Milius. Welcome. Thanks, Paul. It's great Thank to see you guys. Yeah. We are here to talk about Aspen's housing crisis, such as it is. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves. Peter, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and your interest sure. in this issue. Um, Peter Grenny. So I've been here since 2007. I'm a realtor in town with Sotheby's. Um, I guess my interest in this topic was sort of just organic and understanding is kind of our biggest issue in the community and started peeling back the layers and having conversations with Elizabeth. We just went deeper and deeper and tried coming up with solutions and figuring out kind of what the best path forward might be. Right, right. And you, where'd you move here from? Uh, San Diego. San Diego. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Elizabeth? Well, I have, in this phase, been in the community since 2008. It's, um, it's when I started writing The Red Ant. So this is year 15 of doing this. But um, it's just been in recent years that I've been in the newspaper on Sundays. And housing has always been my focus. Um, I write on a lot of different civic matters, but housing has always been at the forefront. And when I hear things like, we need more housing, um, I like to think that I have an institutional knowledge of our housing program on par with anybody who knows a lot about it. And um, I've always questioned the assumptions, and I know the numbers. And so this recent push towards um, we need more, we need more, we need more, uh, really caught my attention. And with Peter, it's been really helpful to have somebody to workshop it and to, to do the deep dive together. Right. right. You guys did a presentation to the Rotary Club last week. So maybe we can start out, you guys can just talk about, kind of use that as a baseline for discussing your, your issues, your concerns, and then we've got to, you know, we can, we can dive in, we can talk about because um, it's a multivariate issue, right? There's a yeah. lot of issues. There's a lot of layers to this. And um, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to let you guys – and I, I'm on the – by the way, I'm, I'm on the record <coughs> writing about it as well. I'm a columnist as well locally for a local newspaper. Um, so I'm on the record about it. So I'm, I'm not really an objective host in, this ca in, that, in that sense. Um, but uh, I thought this would be an interesting conversation with you guys given that your continued and persistent interest – and, you know, the other thing I almost forgot, Elizabeth, was, I mean, you have some government background, too, I mean, at the federal level. So you worked um, for uh, the Bush administration. Yeah, the um, Defense Department. But mm -hmm. um, so I guess one can say I'm familiar with um, the perception of government waste. Right. And um, spending and accountability and all of those things. But right. I think that's more, you know, more background. This is getting you know, really, is. really micro. But... Um, well, and you've also got, I mean, you, but you're, and you're, I mean, you have a, a longer legacy in Aspen than just since 2008, right? I mean, you, you were here before that. Yeah, my original uh, tenure began in 1987. Right. So okay. my, my connection here, and I've been Goes way back. following it for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah it's been, yeah. been here for a while. So anyway, however you guys want to start, why don't you just yeah. talk, go through your, your points about the housing crisis, kind of where we are okay. and what your thoughts are. All right. Um, so we did this presentation to Rotary, and it was actually a much bigger effort, I think, than we thought it would be because we had reams of paper and data, and like you said, it's a really complex issue. So mm -hmm. it was really hard to figure out where to start. But where we landed was looking at sort of Aspen's development history to set the framework for um, how we go forward, I guess. <clears throat> so we went through the history of Aspen's development since the inception of the resort in the late 50s and looked at the population growth um, and the development growth from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was fascinating to go back through the Aspen Historical Society archives and um, read the 1966 community plan and understand what was going on at that time and how affordable housing sort of came into the picture as a response to all the, the growth and development that was happening in the 50s and 60s. And as you probably know, uh, from the mining days when the population sort of peaked at that time, we went into the quiet years in the first part of the 20th century, and we really hit a low in terms of population uh, right around 1950 when the resort started. And from there, particularly in the 60s, the population just went straight up 
And the development, uh, which I, I learned, wasn't just, I kind of assume most of it was in the city, uh, the old town city part of Aspen, but a lot of it was sprawling outside the town and in the 60s. And one example of that is I think three or four of the mobile home parks were built in the 60s, so mm-hmm. all the way down to Aspen Village, um, the Woody Creek Mobile Home Park and the Smuggler Mobile Home Park. Um, and then there were developments, uh, or at least in the 1966 plan, it contemplated growth up in Little Annie's Basin, uh, up on Owl Creek. And to right. me, seeing that, it was like, wow, I didn't even, I sort of took for granted that most of that's protected and it's not developed. Um, okay. But in those early days, there was a ton of development happening. So by the time you got to the 60s, uh, and, and or excuse me, the 70s. In the 60s, population growth was 10% each year or more. And in the 70s, um, we, that, that's when affordable housing really came into being in like 1974, I believe. Midland Park was the first development there. Um, and from there, population starts to slow down in terms of its rate of increase, but our, our population is still increasing drastically. Um, we get through the 80s, which um, is when we had our first major affordable housing developments with Hunter Creek and Centennial, which are big projects. And they in, them, in themselves, they're, they're kind of sprawling projects. Um, mm-hmm. But they're still within kind of the, the old... Um, the old town. The, the, old the, town. the center kind of in the middle of the community. Yeah. 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 Um, and then getting into the 90s, what we discovered is... Um, that over 50% of our affordable housing stock was built between the mid-90s and maybe 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really to play catch-up for all the development that had happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's, and that's assuming that we're, the catch-up part is mitigating for um, growth, of, uh, growth of the town, growth right. in development physically, um, but also the displacement of workers from existing structures in town. You know, the population um, was filling out um, and our service uh, economy was developing. We needed more workers. And so this catch-up was uh, kind of a mitigating force for that um, sophistication and the development of the resort. Okay. So that catch-up was because we needed more employees and that full-time equivalent that that gets referred to a lot, the creation and the need for workers. So even at that point, the supply and demand issue around the cost of free market housing was presumed to be a driver. Is that fair to say in your in your research that that, yeah. that yeah. if you're gonna as the as the community grows, it's a resort community, hospitality based. Proportionately, we need to add space for workers who, because of the way the economy works, they can't afford to buy into the free market because of the demand. So we're going to create, we're going to accommodate that, we're going to meet that community need through the affordable housing program. Is that fair? Yeah, I think in the 70s, it was still possible to help people get into free market housing. Um, somewhere in the mid-80s, I think the affordability just got too far away for, you know, the average wage of a resort worker, um, and which meant it was even more important to sort of keep pace with building affordable housing with free market. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of another part of this is we realized this mentality that became ingrained is that we have to keep up with free market development and this need for workers. Um, and that really got rooted in the 90s and early 2000s when we built all these projects. Um, and we feel like there's a little bit of that mentality that we still have today, even though we're at a different point in kind of the the maturation of the, of the town. So, yeah, and, and really, and our population has leveled out, and um, you know the, the census shows very, very, very small growth. Really, what would be considered no growth mm-hmm. uh, in the past decade. But um, so we we kind of extrapolated from this and said um, we are now in a post-growth phase. Mm-hmm. We're physically at build out. Um, we're full. There are some things in the pipeline with some new hotel projects, and there are things that are online to be developed. But where we, for 40 years, have looked at free market development being met with subsidized housing development to keep up, um, 
and these these equations of full time equivalents, jobs generated. Um, we're at build out physically, and that marks the end of the growth phase. We're in a post growth phase. So, in contrast to how we addressed the impacts of growth all the way up until recently. Our population was growing, jobs were growing, our infrastructure was growing, we were sprawling out into the edges of the urban growth boundary. So thankfully, um, we addressed these with our growth management quota system, um, full-time employee mitigation, subsidized housing, and our, and our conservation policies and whatnot um, that's kept us where we are today. But the things that we did to address the growth to this point in time no longer apply. We can't build our way out. So any new development that's in the pipeline or that people are contemplating, and that would, in most cases, um, since we're at build-out, refer to redevelopment, mm -hmm. people replacing old square footage with new square footage, just by definition. Um, we, we do have definite impacts of things that are going on here. We still have construction trucks and traffic, and obviously we're dealing with the short-term rental issues, um, this need for workers, we don't have housing for our service industry workforce, etc. There's still a lot of things going on, but our old tools of building more housing to address changes and impacts of the free market, the same tools cannot be used right. to solve the new problems. We need new tools in a new toolbox. Mm -hmm. The old rules just don't apply. And that's where we are today. And I think part of this whole discussion on how much housing do we need if we need any, if we need some, how much, um, needs to be evaluated with the new parameters as opposed to just saying, oh, well, if we think we need more, well, then we'll just build more. Right. So you answered a lot of questions that I had right there with that um, cogent synopsis, I would say. <laughs> cogent, <laughs> so, um, the the you know, One of the things that I think, it, would you, in terms of your observations of how how the housing issue is being addressed now, um, it seems like there's two sets of rules. Like there's a set of rules for affordable housing as a form of development, and there's a set of rules for everything else. And rules might not be the right term. It might be there's a set of kind of perception around, you know, affordable housing is something that is like the highest priority. It has to be built. Every other form of development is like going to destroy the planet through climate change or create some other environmental hazard or is unnecessary because the greed heads are just, um, you know, looking for more, looking to line their pockets. And we'll talk a little bit about more about that later. But what's kind of your observation in that regard that you've seen? I think one thing that kind of um, seemed to not make sense when the moratorium was enacted was that it was just for residential development but other types of development could continue. And one of the main reasons in the ordinance for enacting the emergency moratorium was climate change. And so we're kind of like, wait a minute here, you know, does building a residential home have a different impact on the environment than continuing to build affordable housing if it's about dump trucks and, you know, pollution and things like that? So that didn't seem to really add up. Mm -hmm. um, and the different set of rules, what, what's concerning looking at the, uh, the affordable housing strategic plan, which we'll get into, I guess, is that it is, um, it's really having two sets of rules. So, you know, the private sector, if it's going to be a private sector free market home, uh, it has certain size and scale that it can be. And if it has affordable housing, there's a totally different set of rules. So what we see coming here is a lot of upzoning to allow for affordable housing, um, which would make sense if we knew how much we actually need. And we've agreed upon that and we were working towards a goal. But we've talked about this. There is no measurable goal at this time. So we're sort of just continuing. We're, we're curbing free market development and we're, we're going to be taxing it and mitigating for it based on the, the premise that it's creating more employees, even though we don't have increasing uh, employment. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to be taking the revenues from uh, this redevelopment, which isn't increasing the size or, or isn't growing the capacity of town. Right. Um, and we're going to be 
building a lot more affordable housing. So we, we suddenly see that affordable housing is going to be what's driving growth going forward if we don't change our strategy. Yeah. So where we are right now, just to catch all anybody up who's watching who might not have read the papers, you know, the city of Aspen enacted a emergency moratorium ordinance in December on residential free market residential development and short-term rentals, no more, no additional short-term rental permits for free market residential homes, which is a trend in you know, nationwide. I mean, I'm going to Florida in the springtime and we rented a short-term rental, right? I mean, that's, everybody's doing it now, right? Um, everywhere. Um, and uh, they, they attempted to enact regulations without really much public input, but they got enough opposition that they enacted the moratorium ordinance instead Abor, the, uh, the the realtor association here in town, filed a, a an action uh, to try and um, get that emergency moratorium overturned, really on procedural grounds, as I understand right. mm -hmm. it. Not not that the, that it necessarily wasn't something that should be done, but that there that there should be an opportunity for the people who are impacted to have a say before it's enacted, and that's created a whole bunch of more turmoil that we'll talk about in a minute. But just for context. That's where we are now. And normally you would expect that with an emergency moratorium, you would have a time or a moratorium, you'd have time to actually develop those goals. Mm -hmm. And the city has indicated that they want to develop those goals. They've come forward with a strategic plan. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, I don't know if you can get this. I'm not sure what camera we're on now. But anyway, I think, it's, yeah, that one. So um, that, um, uh, that we'll talk about a little bit. So, um, so that... Um, that moratorium, it's still in, in question whether it will be upheld or whether they'll have to go back and take more public input. We'll see how that plays out. But fundamentally, where we are now is we're kind of at this place where there could be an opportunity for conversation around setting the kind of goals that you're describing. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what you're seeing now, you've given us kind of the history coming up to present day. What are you seeing now? What are you guys seeing now in terms of what's happening? Well, backing up a little bit, sure. at the root of the moratorium, both of these permit pauses um, is this belief that um, housing and the displacement of locals is, um, is the, the byproduct. Um, the growth of the short-term rental market is being accused of offsetting places for locals to live and therefore creating this argument for the demand for more housing. Same with redevelopment. As people are improving their free market properties, the assumption is that local workers are being driven out of their homes mm -hmm. um, in this real estate environment. So it's, it's all housing rooted. And I sort of see those as symptoms rather than causes. Um, Yes, there's always going to be a little bit of displacement, but we just went through that historical timeline to illustrate that the real displacement happened a long time ago and that we have addressed with this huge growth in our portfolio of 3,200 APCHA properties in the portfolio. Um, we have caught up with free market development. And while there still are people, you're never going to say nobody is being displaced by the free market um, decisions, short-term rentals or redevelopment, um, that number is very, very low at this point. I think we figured it out to be less than 10% yeah. of working locals still live in free market housing. Okay. And so these enormous decisions regulatory-wise are um, all stemming from a very, very small segment of potential local workers who stand to potentially be displaced. Okay. And so that's sort of a framework of how that all ties together, development, short-term rentals, and housing. So the ship has kind of sailed on that, is what you're well, saying. I mean, if, 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 um, if free market housing is no longer real, I mean, it's no longer really the primary place where the workers in that's, town live. That's exactly Then that, That's what I mean. The yeah. ship has kind of sailed. It's a very small if, fraction. It doesn't mean, that, anecdotally, these are all human beings. These are our friends. These are our neighbors. Right. And Every story you hear, it's awful, it's emotional. Someone's leaving the valley because they can't find housing because they lost their lease because their landlord is going to short-term rent the place. You know, it's, we're a community. You know, you feel that. But the numbers don't bear out that this is some huge avalanche trend that's happening. And the numbers are really quite small. Certainly not enough to say, oh, my gosh, we need 
to build hundreds, potentially thousands of new housing units. Right. And I think that's been a, our response traditionally as a community is anytime you hear of a story that's very emotional and very personal, someone losing housing or not being able to hire someone because of not having access to housing, the immediate response is, you know, we need to build more, which is totally makes sense and fair. Um, but again, going back to the build out, we, we have to understand that anything we build going forward has a trade-off in terms of our quality of life and our community character. So we need to be really thoughtful about how we house people and how much we choose to build more we choose to build. It's really interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're both very diplomatic about the issue of demand for housing. I don't know I mean, how many people would so, say that about me. So, <laughs> well, you're being very diplomatic at the moment. Um, there, there are, um, the, it, it seems to me as though and I've written about this, and I know Elizabeth's written about this, that there is, if anytime you offer a good or a service that's subsidized by the government at 90% on the dollar, there's going to be fundamentally unlimited demand for that. And there's already kind of unlimited demand for a desire to live in places like Aspen. And then you add on top of that a, a housing program that is, you know, that is, that creates that opportunity, that makes it f seem more real to people who come here for the first time and get that feeling that so many people have when they've come here and they've said, I'm going to figure, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure out how to stay here. Um, it all, it feels like almost like a form of low resolution thinking to me, not on the part of the person who wants to live here, yeah. but by, by, but on the part of the <clears throat> policymakers who are making the decisions about the allocation of public resources to, um, to, to make those decisions. Now, in fairness, you know, when you look at the, the, the strategic plan, you know, the, 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 the framework they set is that affordable housing should be for workers, retirees, and disabled former workers. So they've reestablished, at least in terms of the policy document, um, what I saw happening where it was kind of moving, edging into anybody should be able to come and live in Aspen if they want to. And, that, and they, so they've hit, it's, it feels to me like the city has kind of moved away from that. It's tightened a tiny tightened bit it up at, a the little margins, bit. at the yeah, margins. Yeah, at the margins. <clears throat> but still... To your point, when I look at the plan, it, there used to be a goal where it was we need to we want to try and set a target of housing sixty percent of our workforce in the housing program. That's no longer uh, anything that you see anymore because I think people realize that's not really possible. They don't think it is, but there isn't really any alternative, and there are there there's really no financial proof. You know, almost like a geometric proof. If you anybody who had a geometry class, you might remember when you had to do a geometric proof of of, a, of an outcome. Now, there's really no financial proof in terms of strategic financial planning in the plan. There's one page that just lists the amount of money they've collected over the last 20 years. Yeah, see, they, you know, there's no financial proof that they can even afford to do any of this. Well, and the they plan. also there's a huge avoidance <coughs> of hard facts. Yeah. And that was one thing we have spent countless hours trying to pull data together so that it all exists in one place because right. it's conveniently been spread around in different jurisdictions. Yeah. And to your point, um, for a long time, the community kind of accepted a 60% target figure. And that number has just disappeared. Right. And that's by design because if there is a 60% number, that could represent a hard number. And there's yeah. a huge aversion to stipulating a hard number. Right. And that's because a hard number will preclude the ongoing statement that we need more right. and more has become the substitute for a hard number you know we have looked at um how many bedrooms we have in in this 3200 um APCHA unit portfolio plus um the other deed restricted properties that would be um controlled or owned by the large employers skiko the hospital the schools etc we have counted um, Snowmass Village was in the is, county in the, in the, city, in the county, the city. Snowmass. We came up with a total of eighty, just over eighty-two hundred bedrooms. And bedrooms was a better number than units because our units are spread across Studio One, Two, Three, Four. So it's just a, a little bit more of a um, a better picture. Mm -hmm. Eighty-two hundred bedrooms. And so, what is our capacity in those bedrooms? And even if you put one person per bedroom. You could come up with 8,200 people is our capacity, but we realize that not every bedroom just has one person in it. We've got couples, we've got children, and at a certain point, because nobody is counting and there isn't a mechanism for it in place right now, we had to make an, an informed assumption, and so we decided to be really conservative with it to get to a, a capacity number, and we came up with 1.25 people per bedroom. 
the idea being if you picture a four-bedroom unit, five people might live there as a, a fair assumption mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you have to make an assumption in the absence of knowledge. And that all being said, that puts the capacity that we have existing, built out today, 8,200 bedrooms, 1.25 people per bedroom, we have the capacity to house 10,000 people right now. And that is almost 70% of our countywide workforce. But more notably, it's Countywide all, population, right? Of our, our workforce. Our workforce is, it, is, is about- Is that the work? Yeah, it's, the, okay. it's of the workforce, but it's about almost 60% of our population. Oh, okay, okay, So, gotcha. you know, from the standpoint is, these are high numbers, nearly 60% of our entire population. And, um, nearly 70% of our workforce, we have the capacity today to house so, them. So what we get, the immediate re reaction to that, which uh -huh. is entirely fair, is, well, you know, we're not just going to pile workers into every bedroom, and that's unrealistic. Or families. Or families, mm -hmm. or, or retirees. Right. Or, or, and so the, pro the challenge with coming up with a number has been the community housing component. And we've never identified how much community housing we want to have kind of separate from workforce housing. Mm -hmm. And I really think, uh, you know, one of, our one of our conclusions from working on this is um, someone said it much more eloquently to say, what is the community we want to be? You know, and this kind of brings up caring capacity and other mm -hmm. things, but... What does it look like? You know, we have 7,000 Aspen residents today. We have 17,000 in the county. How much population do we, growth do we want to have? And then for the population that we have, how much um, do we want to house of our workforce? How much do we want to house of retirees and families? And then the free market. And we haven't been able to come up with that picture as a community so we can start to figure out how we're going to achieve those numbers. So, Elizabeth, you just turned to something. That no, no, no. I just, my, my brain is turning a page, okay. too. I was thinking that um, from our rotary presentation, we're kind of um, all over the place here. Yeah. But that's exactly it. You know, it's one thing. We have to acknowledge the reality on the ground. And that's where that capacity number comes in. And um, when I talk about capacity, I get blow, the blowback as always. But we're not going to fill every single bedroom with, you know, with workers. There's families and everything. Yeah, I understand that. But we have to acknowledge capacity, and um, what the universe of the possible is. And that's where I always come back to the fact that, in the absence of a target or a goal line, um, we're just letting things go well, as they will. And in so doing, these are deliberate decisions. Yeah. In, in the absence of a deliberate decision to hit a goal, we're making a deliberate decision to just say la vie. And we've got empty bedrooms. We've got retirees with multiple empty bedrooms. We have retirees who are fundamentally stuck. They would love to be somewhere else, but they didn't account for the fact 40 years ago that their uh, resale cap yeah. would be what it is right. and that that wouldn't buy them anything anywhere. Right. And without that deliberate end goal, we're sort of at the mercy of not filling our capacity, so not utilizing our capacity. So the golden handcuffs are real for some of these retirees. They, oh, very they, much so. They are kind of stuck where they are. Not all. So, and some, some, you know, but there are plenty yeah. that are. And, yeah. and again, there's, these are all anecdotes. But yep. um, Peter wanted to jump yeah, in here. Yeah. Um, one thing that gave me a lot of perspective when we were going through this was to look at other communities, resort communities, and how they're dealing with this challenge, and uh, particularly since COVID, which has accelerated all these trends and price increases and the great migration and great resignation. Mm -hmm. There, you know, I haven't done too much research on it, but like Route County and Steamboat, you know, they're in this mode that when we were going through and looking at the history of Aspen's build out, they're probably in the 70s or 80s where Aspen was, where suddenly they're seeing all this price appreciation. Workers are getting priced out and displaced by second homeowners, but they have a urban growth boundary that has yet to fill in. So they're dealing with sprawl. So they're trying to keep up with um, the free market to provide workers for this growing population. Um, and the and the city and county is looking to buy old motels, you know, right. and do greenfield development and do all these things, which we can't do anymore because we're sort of at build out, and so our tools aren't the same as 
as theirs that worked for us back in the 70s and 80s. And But what Steamboat and Route County has the benefit of is they don't really have to set a goal because they can keep building to keep pace or try and catch up or um, try and catch up really. But we sort of are, at Build Out need to define what we want to be because at this point going forward, if we add more people, it's just more density. Right, right. You know, one, and one of the things that I, that kind of springs out to me when I read the city's new strategic housing plan is that is what's not said as much as what is because um, you know it's economics 101 um, scarcity is a is a concept that exists in any economic choice and there is a scarcity of capacity to build housing to Elizabeth's point there might be efficiency measures that can be used to help improve the use of the existing system, but unless you set some firm boundaries around managing scarcity, you open up all kinds of other really, really challenging issues that you, you start to lay landmines for yourself for future generations. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of those, I think we're already kind of facing in Aspen, which is, you know, by my calculations, and I was the city's finance director for five years, so I'm fairly familiar with the city's financial structure and the affordable housing fund and, and what the money goes to use even. I mean, I haven't been there for, in a long time, um, uh, in, a, in about 15 years. Uh, uh, but um, I, it is, it takes about, I estimate from looking at historical financial um, results in detail, looking inside the numbers, it takes about 8 to 10% growth a year on average, just for the program to stay even, just for them to be able to f afford to fund the existing level of units that they have. And of course, they're going to be losing units, and they call that out in the plan, which I think is a good thing. You know, they've got units that are coming off of deed restriction because they made decisions back in the 80s to sunset deed restrictions um, at, at future years, which was a, you know, a really bad strategic decision for if, you're, if you're managing an affordable housing program, you're trying to build an affordable housing program. But it was a political negotiated compromise, I think, is the way that was the, the yeah. way it was handled. But there's about 300, 350 units that are going to coming off de-destruction in the next huge, yeah. 10 to 20, 25 years based on some really strange formulas and the life expectancy of the life of uh, council county commissioners who were, who were making the decisions at the time. And it's, it's some really crazy stuff. But... Um, but scarcity, it seems to me, is something that is is really not understood and, and or, or really not addressed in the plan. Well, and, there, yeah, but there's one ahead. element of scarcity. <clears throat> it's not written, but it's not the free market scarcity, which is the driver of prices going up. There's actually another sub-market of scarcity, and that is for this group. I call them the aspirants. Um, there are the ha subsidized housing residents and there are the aspirants and the people who aspire to get into the program. Uh -huh. There's scarcity in the program. There is an unlimited desire to live in, in Aspen affordably. Right. And the aspirants and this scarcity of people who say, darn it, this is awesome here. I want to live here. I came here on vacation. My friends are here and they're in this housing program. Darn it, I want to stay. Um, those people are creating this demand right. for the scarce resource of subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. And where the community I see has really lost its way, um, given the fact that we don't have a very specific goal for our housing um, other than roofs over heads, um, is that we've allowed this scarcity in our housing program to to create this new subcategory of demand, and that's those desiring right. housing here. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that is a, a huge pressure on the system, and it's been taken very, very seriously as motivators for us to say, we need more, we need to build more, we have this demand. Instead of saying, hey, demand from who? Just right. because you want to live here in Aspen affordably, is that reason for us to blow out our urban growth boundary, for us to defy our infill codes, right. um, et cetera, make all of these you know, variances to build more housing to address the households who want to live here? Right. Instead of the other way around and saying, hey, resort, hey, we kind of say, we, we talk about it a lot as a cruise ship, right. you know, the, the engine room. 
um, we need people to stoke the fires in the engine room. Right. And if we're selling or converting, you know, space on the cruise ship to passengers, yeah. all of a sudden we don't have enough workers to, st- to work the engine room. And so there is a scarcity going on, yeah. but in the sub-market. Yep. Let me switch gears just a little bit, and then I'd like to dive in and talk a little bit about the plan, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you both live in Aspen. You're both Aspen residents. You both yep. live in free market. Mm-hmm. I live in a free market apartment. You live in a free market yeah. apartment? Yeah. Are you a renter or do you own that, that apartment? I rent, yeah. You rent? You're yeah. a renter? And, Elizabeth, you own I your own. <laughs> your free market, and you've owned that for quite a while quite now. Quite a while. Mm-hmm. So um, do you both consider yourselves supporters of affordable housing in Aspen? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. Because I know that from what I read and what I see, um, yeah. you know, and, and you know, and Elizabeth and I are both columnists, and we're we've been friends for a long time, and so we talk about these issues a lot. Um, I know Elizabeth isn't always pr- portrayed as a supporter of affordable housing in the community. Mine is. So. I, I I want it. I consider myself a shareholder. I have paid the rent. Right. I know. You know. I can look at my closing documents on right. numerous transactions and say. Yeah, I'm a shareholder of the real estate transfer tax, which funds subsidized housing. So as a shareholder, I care right. about how it's managed. Right. And it's been in my crosshairs forever. I just don't think it's a very well-managed entity, right. um, to say the least. Um, but do we need it? Of course we need it. And right. has it changed our community and enabled our community to be what it is and the resort to be what it is? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's the problems that are so easily and straightforwardly addressed that are so blatantly ignored that just drive right. me to distraction. Right. So, my, yeah. Peter, well, I just want to say my, my feeling, I, I think affordable housing in Aspen is absolutely necessary and a great um, asset that we have. I mean, more so than any other resort community, we have, you know, 3,200 units and as Elizabeth said, 8,200 beds, which is unbelievable. I don't think there is another... Uh, luxury resort community with so much right. um, affordable housing. My concern is really the growth. I think we have this close to right balance between free market and subsidized housing, and we can make the community we want to be with what we have. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily necessarily subscribe to we need more affordable housing in order to be the community we want to be. I don't think going from seven to 10 or 12,000 people and having more people be in affordable housing is going to make us necessarily a better community because the way we're seeing the affordable housing stock utilized isn't necessarily for workers to support the community always. Right. Okay. And I, and I want to make this one point, maybe we'll get to it, but the other discovery we had looking at this is how much the, um, the job landscape has changed in the last 20 years and particularly since COVID and the ability now with remote work to live in Aspen and not necessarily have to work within the community. 20 years ago, you moved here and worked here. It's interesting. You're going to be working for a job that's probably tied to supporting the community and you're probably going to be capped in how much money you can make. And the temptation now, which is so real and rational to Uh, work another job that doesn't necessarily support the community remotely and be able to do it with a fixed housing cost is totally makes sense and is totally legal within the rules right now. So I don't see the system that we have being sustainable going forward. Yeah, we've identified a real trend that's been exacerbated by the pandemic and we, we named it the Aspen dream. And it's that you come to Aspen and you work in a community and resort service industry job, you get your qualifications for APCHA and you get in the system. And the only day, the only day that it matters how much you make, where you work, is the day that you close. And so if Aunt Louise leaves you $10 million the next day, great. Um, There are instances of, well, there are families with the chateau in France that they split time between. Um, posts on Instagram. There are people sitting at their desk working for Google and Lockheed. Um, our affidavit, um, that I guess it's every other year you fill that every out. Two years, I, um, I went online to check it out because I just couldn't believe that we weren't catching some of this in the net. And it's basically a fill out an online form. Yes or no, I work 1,500 hours in Pitkin County. 
Right. And um, yeah. so the trend, so. it's entirely, it's permitted, therefore it's entirely rational. Work in the resort service industry, qualify, get your housing, and you're set for life. So, so it's your sense that while there are employment guidelines and requirements, that they're fairly easy to um, game. Game, yeah, I could yes, say, yeah, I could say, you know, I, I work in Picking County for Google. I'm a contractor. I have an LLC. I could, I could probably tell myself, like, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm a community but, member. I pay. But that doesn't so. support the community. That's not Mm-mm. supporting the hospitality yeah. Yeah. Um, economy of the community. And especially when we're claiming, very realistically, <clears throat> we don't have housing for our workers. Right. Now, there is a worker housing shortage um, and it could be perceived as a crisis, but is the overall housing program in crisis? Yeah, for a lot of reasons, but not because it's a shortage. Right. We've got the capacity. We have this inventory. But right now, the trend line is away from workers living in housing. So, and even the near-term um, decisions to build, we're looking at the programming mm-hmm. that's real at Burlingame 3 and then proposed for the lumberyard so many three-bedroom for-sale units. Now, how many workers who are going to be applying for the jobs in the newspaper are going to be buying three-bedroom for-sale units? Yeah, yeah. And um, sorry, we keep bouncing around here. Yeah, so interrupt us. The other part of this is um, I, I just want to acknowledge that I do think people in affordable housing should be able to make more money, should be able to change jobs, and be able to move with, up within the system. So it's not necessarily saying you come here and work as a lift operator, you got to stay and do that your, you know, your entire time in Aspen. Mm-hmm. So there should be mobility within the system, but we do need to be reasonable about how many people we can provide housing for that don't support the community in their work mm-hmm. directly. And particularly with what we've heard about the second homeowner economy growing so much and, you know, a chef leaving a restaurant to become a private chef in a, in, in a second home, um, that restaurant cannot rehire and compete with the job opportunities of the second home market without having some type of, of advantage in the form of housing. Right. Right. Okay. Interesting. So we've got about probably 15 minutes um, left in our, in our hour. Let's talk a little bit about some, some of the stuff in the plan. Okay. And I, I, I made a few notes. I just want to kind of get your take on some of this stuff. So the first page of the plan, they have the goal for the plan. <laughs> and, the, and, and, and I quote, provide an, so the goal of the plan is to provide an action plan to support the continued availability of affordable housing that is high quality, sustainable, and results in a lived-in community and a healthy workforce. So the plan of the plan is to plan. So it's the so the plan of the plan is to plan is to keep planning. So you know that's a concern for me because it because <laughs> it, it, it it and I think it's an indication of how politically charged and how challenging and difficult this issue is because it's really hard to get gain consensus around some specific things that you really want to try and achieve. So I could make an argument. I think that that's been done. I mean, to your point, Elizabeth, we're at build-out. We've been building this program. About half the um, residential units in the community are deed-restricted or follow the deed-restricted guidelines. So, you know, we've kind of done it. Or not we, the royal we. Aspen has kind of done it. And now we do need to shift gears. What what are your thoughts? We also just spent a million bucks a year ago on digitizing the housing program a database that was sold to the community um, as something that would more or less mimic the assessor's website where you could go in and find out who lives where and where they work. It was really sort of a checks and balances, but also um, provide data and information both to staff and to the public and the media, et cetera, just an oversight transparency vehicle. And that has been, um, it exists, but it is really kind of, privately well, locked down. Well, it's really interesting because you're right because they they lauded this home trek it's called home, home trek, trek I yeah. think, right? Mm-hmm. That there's going to be they're going to they're going to automate the system, it's going to provide all this great information and help drive good policy making. Um, and I think that's great. I think it's great they have an oh, they absolutely. have a they have a new system. Um, but in the strategic plan, that system and the data that it provides and their ability to leverage it is is mentioned neither in the priorities 
nor in the SWOT analysis anywhere. Because the results of that data, the facts, yeah. are not politically expedient. Right. Now, remember, um, we're dealing with an elected city council, and, and yes, to the same extent, the Board of County Commissioners, but the housing program really is, has become a city construct. Um, well, they've these, got the checkbook. Yes, exactly. Yeah. These are the folks who get elected by promising more housing. And the political expediency of more housing is far more powerful than looking at the facts right. and making hard decisions. And Peter and I both have been in various um, ad hoc situations where we've brought up along the lines of this home track database the need for this transparency and, in fact, a system-wide audit. Mm -hmm. um, who is where? Where do they work? What industry do they work? This is public housing. Right. I don't care what anyone says. It's public housing, and it should be transparent. Yeah. The word trigger, you should see the looks on people's place, faces when we say, this needs to be public information. Right. Now, people get in, very threatened. And, um, well, it's their home, right? People, it, people take it very mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very unique intersection mm -hmm. in public policy that, you don't, that doesn't emerge a lot of places. Well, and so. elected leaders are not going to go there. No. Because it's, it's going to cost them votes. It's dirty, and yeah. it's much easier to just keep saying more. Right. So I, Peter, I think the the spirit of that is not to call people out or some witch hunt. It's just really to know what we have, mm -hmm. you know, and and kind of have a dashboard to know who is in housing, what our population looks like, so we can sort of take that and then figure out where we want to go and and start working on a plan to get there. What? Well, how yeah. can you how can you determine for a minute? what you need until you know what you have. And 3,200 yeah. units doesn't answer what yeah. we have. No, and, and, it's, and it's, it's even, you're, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think in addition to that, in this particular case, once you know what you have, you need to understand what, what, your, because, what your capacity is to manage and modify that based on the best opportunity to meet the community's needs over time because you're never going to meet the demand. Yeah. No, but we're so all of this is very focused on demand and very there's very little yeah. if any mention about the community need. It comes up in terms of we need worker housing, but it's interesting to acknowledge that we need housing for workers, yet all of our programming for the Burlingame and Lumberyard projects don't address housing for workers. Right. So they're absolutely being programmed to address demand as opposed to so, community need. Yeah, right. the, the Burlingame 3 uh, category mix that, that's been proposed is based on lottery results and the number of uh, applicants based on categories. So that's, that's what the demand is within the system in the lotteries. It's not lining up with, with what our employment needs are right. and those workers that need housing. That's a legacy issue that they haven't addressed, I think. It's been, it's been that way for a long time, yeah. so I think you're right about that. But now, the, in the priorities in the plan, I think they, have, they list some things that I think are good. They list incentivizing voluntary, voluntary downsizing, you know, which is something that the first time I ever heard that was in 2008 when I facilitated the Citizen Budget Task Force when Nick Ireland was mayor. And it came out of that group as a, as a recommendation that went and sat on a shelf. Um, 14 years later. 14 years now. It, so it's, it's made it into the plan. That's good. Um, partnerships. I think partnerships is a great idea. Leveraging other resources, leveraging other organizations. I'm actually a board member for a partner for, the, for API, Aspen Pickett Employee Housing, that owns and operates Hunter Longhouse. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much involved in affordable housing here in the Valley, too. And I consider myself a supporter. Um, and compliance. So they've list compliance as a goal. Low priority. Well, it's listed as a priority. It's not, it's not one of the top priorities, but it's at least on the list. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so we I'm, have trying to, I'm just trying to be positive here. We have it at uh, nine on the list out of, so, out of 14. So. So, <laughs> let, so let's talk about the things that are missing from the plan in terms of priorities. There is no overall kind of SMART goal, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, you know, um, target. There's, right. no, there's no measurable target to shoot for. That for the whole plan. There's nothing, there's nothing here that's really based on, then there's no numbers to base anything on really in the plan. They really don't, they really don't project out what they can afford, 
how they're going to pay for things. Now, they're in this weird bubble where there's a ton of money flowing into the program because of all the transactions that have occurred. It's a very dangerous time when, you're, when you manage public money, when you get these bubbles of resources that come in um, and that because you know that they're going to go away and you don't want to be dedicating all those resources to ongoing things and then you don't have enough money, right? So they've got to be very careful right now. Um, but, uh, um, you know, they don't really, they really haven't demonstrated financial stability or sustainability for the program over time. It's a foundational cornerstone thing. You guys mentioned it. Um, they're not leveraging the data. They don't talk about how they need to leverage the data from HomeTrek to help manage the system. That's a real key cornerstone, it seems to me, that they could, that they could um, add. Um, you know, and they don't really address the condition of the current inventory as a, as a, as how they're going to, how they're going to really overcome well, that issue. Well, think about it. The program as it exists today, put the big bucket of new money aside and put the dreams of housing thousands more people aside. Just looking at what we have today, a deteriorating inventory, um, a huge compliance issue, um, no, no political will or otherwise to enforce compliance. Um, it's a broken system as it exists today. And the low-hanging fruit in this entire equation is to clean up your own shop. And just by cleaning up your own shop, even if it's just at the margins, you're going to shake out a, right. few, a few units at a minimum. Right. And culturally, we could see some monumental shifts with just enforcing compliance. Yes, yeah. most cost-effective. Absolutely. 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 And, yeah. you know, that's without spending a dime, without hammering a nail. We could just shake, shake the system up a little bit and, again, then assess what we have. Right. And that would be a new number. Yeah. And then that would give us at least a, a, a baseline yeah. for what we think we need. Yeah. But no, we relegate something as straightforward as compliance but, to the bottom of the list. But five of the six go top goals are development related. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, so that's, that was our big concern looking at this is some of the things that are included here that are non-growth, non-development related, including compliance – were initially listed very low on the, on the order of priorities. Mm -hmm. And looking back at the 2012 AACP, there were a lot of things in there that we thought were very wise and had great foresight that haven't come to fruition in the last 10 years. Talking about land banking, talking about the, the wave of retirees coming and the demographic shift. Um, there, there's a lot of thing in the, things in that AACP that haven't happened, but what has happened in the last 10 years is planning more development and increasing mitigation fees. So we're a little bit concerned, is this plan, what's actually going to get done in this plan, and how, how do you make sure that those non-politically um, expedient right. things happen? Right. If people are interested in the plan, I pulled it down off of the city website. It was in the agenda packet for the council meeting on 15th the or 14th yeah, or 15th on either the 14th or the 15th yeah, so you can pull it if you pull that agenda packet it's the last document or one of the last documents in that packet you can pull it out uh, as a pdf and download it and read it yourself and i'm sure you could call the clerk and they'd email one to you as well so um i want to switch really quickly with the little bit of time we have left and talk a little bit about next week is there's a hearing on uh, ABOR's action against the city for the uh, lawsuit. There's a big dust-up in the paper about that um, uh, this week, or maybe, I'm sorry, it was last week, because in some of their, in one of their responses, the city is um, making some claims that are really quizzical to me. And one of the things, and what they say is, is they say that essentially that ABOR is acting entirely out of um, greed, basically. They say that, that, that ABOR's only interests in filing this action are for the financial gain of their members. Well, that's, that's their political expediency, again, coming into play. Um, they have to vilify real estate and development so that in this moratorium phase when they change the land use code and they change all the fees and regulations, they're going to jack these to kingdom come. Remember, their end goal is to raise money for more housing. And so the more demonized 
real estate and development can be, the more they feel justified to raise the um, yeah. make make, make real a estate political issue out of a legal brief. At, well, not that, so. but also just even more tactically, um, building permit fees. Who knows about real estate transfer taxes? Basically. These people are bad. These are greedy people. We're going to tax the bejesus out of them to raise money for housing. It's just a little signal of what's to come. Um, It was an irresponsible and a really immature remark, especially about um, legal proceedings that aren't even challenging them on the policy. The legal challenge is on procedure. It's all, it's all, yeah, it was basically the way I read it. It was procedural and it's pretty much dead bang. I mm-hmm. mean, when I, when I, I'm not an attorney, but I've read a lot of legal briefs and it seems to me it's pretty clear. Well, that, if you don't that, properly notice a meeting yeah. and you pass some yeah. legislation like this, well then so, there's a problem. Yeah. Peter, what are you doing? you're, I, you're, I just think it's, you're a member of ABOR. Yeah. You've been, <laughs> I don't know the, if I should speak about the, it, but this, I, well, you see, yeah. that's part of the problem, right? right? right. I mean, because that, that's when you, when a, and, it, and it's very concerning to me when a local government puts in a legal brief a, uh, an incendiary comment that is, div- that is divisive to the community that they have, a, have an obligation to represent dispassionately. Mm-hmm. And they put in the legal brief that, I mean, they can defend the city. The attorneys for this action can defend the city without doing that. And, they can, and, and, and it just really concerns me when they do that. So, yeah. To me, it was just a signal of just further vilifying a, a subset of... Yeah. Our, our population of our workforce um, as a fair warning that you are in the crosshairs, your fees, um, right. your, your programs are all going to become increasingly onerous right. uh, with the end goal of further and greater contributions to the bucket that funds more housing. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have any further thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate how the county has handled like the, the STR situation, and they're right. going through a public process. They've, they've gone back and forth. I went to the Woody Creek Caucus last night. There are people meeting and discussing the issue. It's not just the local government shutting down business and saying, we'll get back to you in six months. With, you know, uh, and besides, you're greedy. Besides, you're greedy. <laughs> so uh, I think the county is handling it really well, and I... I, I feel in a little bit of way that they're being dismissive of some people's livelihoods and how much this impacts them. It's just like calling a total timeout and being like, I don't care how it impacts you. You know, it's too much. And that, that was the way I interpreted the emergency. Well, moratorium. it's, it's, there's a, there's a level of irony in it because, you know, at, at some level, it is the real estate community that has built the structure that makes the housing program possible to start with. <laughs> Because yeah. without real estate transfer taxes, which Aspen is fortunate to have and are outlawed by the um, state constitution, you know, by the Tabor members of the state constitution, no, you know, you can't, we, we can't increase the, the RET fee, uh, the RET tax. And if it was to be repealed, it could never be renewed. Right. So, the, so the fact that Aspen has it is a, is a real benefit to the housing program. But it, the, when, when communities get to the point where they're turning in on themselves, um, which is what's happening, and, uh, and it just feels to me like, like that's not really leadership. If you're in a position, if you're an elected leader and you have a role to try and take a, move a community forward, um, it's a hard time, and this is a really hard issue. I don't, I, I don't think, I, 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 I hope you would both agree with me that this is one of the more complex Public policy issues that I've ever encountered, and I've worked in I worked in local government for about twenty five years. No, it's it's incredibly yeah. complex, yeah. and it's incredibly difficult, and even exacerbating this further is. I don't know if it's just uniquely this council in this moment in time, but um, I have found that um, we can do all of this research. We can have this conversation. You and I can write in the newspapers. You've also often done guest columns. Um, when we're dealing in fact, we don't have any place to take this information because the people who are making the decisions have already made up their mind. And that really concerns me. The answer is more. This is fully baked. Mm-hmm. And a housing strategic plan or how many times do you and I get told every week, hey, you and I should go to a meeting or we should go call someone or we should go down and talk to someone. 
Well, we've actually determined that a lot of that, we do that enough on our own, but it's a waste of our time, especially when these decisions are already made. It's, it's very frustrating because you can see the long-term implications for the community, both growth-wise, fiscally, yeah. you name it. Um, these decisions are coming because there isn't a place to take a rational argument. There's not an, uh, an ombudsman. Um, council will listen. They have to, by right. law. But they've made up their decision, and that's the most worrisome. There's not a grown-up in the room who wants to hear factual reasoning why by perhaps we don't need more. So typically, Peter, those kinds of issues would be need to be managed politically, right? I mean, you need to have different candidates. Mm -hmm. is that, why is that not a possibility um, going forward? What, I mean, well, I think, I mean, are we another year away from a local city election? Mm -hmm. um, so, and this moratorium goes through June 8th or September for the short-term rentals. So there's not really time to organize. To, in the short term. There in the short term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I will say on the positive, uh, one outcome from doing this has been we've met with some great people, some newcomers to town, some really bright people. And having conversation with people about this and educating them, doing research and educating themselves, I think is the best thing to come out of this. And granted, we should be having this conversation as a community at City Hall, not, not outside City Hall all the time. But um, I think it's been really positive uh, to see people get engaged and want to participate. Yeah, I'm just I'm concerned to what end. Um, there is a debate not just going on, I'd have to say it's raging. The, the amount uh -huh. of pull that you and I both have in terms of people who want to come and talk and would you come talk to this group, it's been fascinating. Right. But um, when it comes down to something like that document being ratified, it's really worrisome to me um, because we've got, these are our, you get the, you get the government that you deserve. Um, we have elected people whose belief that our way out of this issue is to build. Right. And the embarrassment of riches that this community has um, actually contributes to it. Right. Because the last thing we need to worry about is where's the money going to come from? Right. It's there. You know, there's, it's interesting. And, and, you know, you, and I, I've read through this plan, and one of the things, as I said, is, it, is the, that interests me is what's not stated. The other thing is just the way the document is framed. There's some really interesting language in the document. If I got, Jeremy, if I got five more minutes, I can go here. Am I good to go? Okay. Jeremy's not going to cut me off. Jeremy controls the horizontal and the vertical, and I, I, um, I appreciate his work. Um, but on page 11 of the plan, um, it, you know, and this is framed in a way that it sounds like it's almost like being, being directed at council as if it's something that they have to do. It's like, so it's, it's, and it says, council's supportive outcomes. When the city is the developer of an affordable housing project, the city council has a significant role in the design and development of the project. During the December 2021 City of Aspen housing retreat, the city council put forward the following statements that supports, that's in support of successful project outcomes. So they're saying staff will be supported with the resources that are needed. City council will take full ownership if we don't succeed. So are they planning too. to fail? City Council will not change direction. The whole point of a plan is to set a framework for adaptation a to changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you're setting a goal, and I wasn't in the housing retreat, so I don't know the full context, and maybe there's something missing from that, but, but memorializing that kind of a black and white statement in a plan like this is... I thought it was dangerous. Very unusual in my experience. Um, council members commit to expressing concerns to staff ahead of time. And uh, clearly they had an open conversation about some concerns that staff had pre about how things have been previously managed. So that's actually kind of a healthy one, I think. Trust and have patience with staff and lead with a public service heart. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, we all, we all try and do that. But it just, it, it, it feels to me like you know, what is, what is the foundation underneath all this? And what's the back story on how the city is really prepared to move forward with, with a very audacious plan for adding a lot of units to their inventory? I mean, you, the headline on your column was 3,000 units is 
10 Burling games or, te, 12, or 10? 12, 12 centennials. 12 centennials, yes. I'm sorry. Or Burling games. Or Burling games, the same size. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but the, the idea of adhering to a regional, a flawed regional housing study from 2017 that gauged demand for affordable housing in right. Aspen and netting a number like 3,000 units short, grabbing that and saying, okay, great, that's our number, and um, just plowing ahead, um, it's, it's dangerous, it's reckless. Don't even do the math on that. We know that it costs a million dollars per unit to build. Yeah. And um, just at the lumber yard, that's $300 million. Yep. It's $3 billion if you extrapolate 3,000 units. And that's not to mention that we don't physically have the space to put that. Right. But we're dealing with um, almost monopoly money and funny numbers. But this plan memorializes a lot of things to a group of city council people who are, I guess, going to be responsible frankly, in listening to their discussions about a lot of this housing um, information, they'd much rather pick paint colors. Oh, yeah. I, if you look in the past year, it'd be fascinating to look at how much time has spent on designing the lumberyard as a developer and talking about parking and courtyards and transit and all those things for one project versus looking at our, our system and yeah. how we can optimize it. It's staggering. Well, and yeah. both of these things, I'm convinced Burlingame 3 and the Lumberyard have all but left the station. And um, even if that's the case, Lumberyard, $300 million to build in, in today's dollars. In their numbers. That's their yeah, numbers. Their numbers, yeah. And yeah. we know what happens with their numbers. Yeah. Um, that being said, I'll say it right here. Our worker housing shortage is not even going to be touched right. by that. So put us four or five years down the road. Um, we still will have a worker housing shortage, not unlike what we have today. Yeah. And we will have grown our population, local population, by what? Just a little under 10%. That's infrastructure. That's schools. That's everything. And um, we will still have a worker housing shortage. So then what? The lack of willingness to sit down and play chess rather than checkers, or God forbid, even tiddlywinks, um, we're just repeating the same behaviors right. that admittedly solved us, served us well in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and 90s. But we're in a different time now, right. and we just need to play the game differently. Yeah. But the reticence to even acknowledge that the game has changed is really troublesome. Yeah. Peter, final thoughts. Um, I just hope we can continue to have this conversation in the community. Uh, I don't think, you know, we've learned a lot. We're by no means experts, and I love hearing new ideas and, and being challenged on the data, and I, I hope that the conversation, people don't aren't reluctant to really engage and get involved because that's certainly been the case in the past, but we're at such a critical point that we really need to... Uh, make some smart decisions right now. Right. Elizabeth? It's sort of my um, overarching theme. We have a housing crisis. It's just not a shortage. Right. Good. Thank you both for joining Thank me. Thank you. We'll talk about Aspen's housing crisis. It is a, it's, a, it's an important, difficult, multi-layered issue, and uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. And we could do a whole other one just on the lumberyard. Right. I mean, just, uh, so it would uh, maybe we'll do that. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for watching.